We've been looking at uh, the life of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and now we're to Jacob in our sermon series, telling the story each week. Last week we covered three chapters, that was a little bit much. This week we're going to slow down and just focus on half of a chapter, chapter 28. If you want to turn there in a Bible, you can. We're going to read beginning in verse 10, just a little bit of... um, of context here. You remember last week that uh, Jacob and Esau were at each other. Jacob steals Esau's uh, birthright and blessing. The two brothers have increasing animosity. And Jacob feels like he has to leave for his life. Rebecca encourages him to go. It's kind of a mixed uh, a mixed reason for him going. He's fleeing from his li- for his life, but also he's going to find a wife that's not of the, uh, the, the, the Canaanites, as God had commanded and as Esau had disobeyed in marrying not uh, one but two um, Hittite wives, kind of part of the group of Canaanite people, and then also uh, marrying one of the, um, uh, the, the, the daughters or granddaughters of, of Ishmael. We come to verse 10, and Jacob is leaving his family in Beersheba and heading toward Haran. If you remember, Haran is the middle point of the, the journey that Abraham and, and, and his father, Terah, and, and extended family take that journey from Ur of the Chaldeans to the east in Mesopotamia, and they're, they're, they're intending to come to Canaan, but they stop in Haran. And that's where um, Laban is that we'll read about next week. But here we are. Jacob is leaving Beersheba on the way to Haran, and he gets stopped. You read with me or listen as I read. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me 
and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, will you open our eyes to see and our, our hearts and our minds to hear and believe. This your word. The wonderful truths contained in it and the direction you give us for all of life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. The song begins. It's not just a children's song. It comes uh, from a, a, a slave spiritual that was written and sung in the fields in the 1800s, even as far back as the 1700s, perhaps. Slaves who were not allowed to communicate with one another through conversation would be allowed to sing songs to keep their morale up in the fields, and so they would write songs to encourage one another. Oftentimes, these spirituals were based on biblical truths, simple in their form, but complex and rich in their meaning, especially to one another. Jacob's Ladder was speaking of emerging out of the bonds of slavery, of reaching heaven in its freedom. Jacob's Ladder sounds like it's a a self-centered effort to climb up to heaven at first, but if you peer into it, perhaps that's there to some degree. But it's also pointing in a hope of deliverance that comes ultimately not from their own strength or their power, for they were mostly powerless to save themselves. But a need for God to come and save them and to rescue them out of their sin and their circumstance. That position of helplessness and needing God to come in and rescue is the position that Jacob found himself out on the wilderness alone. And it's a familiar position for us as people of God. The form for our sermon here today is very simple. We're just going to follow the narrative in three rough acts because he begins with, it begins in the first verse with Jacob uh, in this place and in a very lonely, dark place. It continues with Jacob and this dream, this amazing dream that includes God speaking to him and then ends with his awakening and his response to God. So those are the rough three points of the sermon. We'll begin with Jacob on his own. And as I said in the introduction, Jacob is on his own For a number of reasons. Faithfully, like Isaac, he's going to get a wife from a different place and not from the people of Canaan. Differently from Isaac, he's by himself without any possessions. Where Isaac stayed in the land and one of Abraham's servants went to find a wife for him. Jacob 
is by himself in part because of his own scheming and his brother setting out to murder him. Jacob is by himself because he's, fleeing, he's, he's afraid for his own life. There's two textual markers here that give us some indication of how Jacob is and where he is in his place. The first one is that, uh, that he came to, we're in verse 11 here, he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night. Now this is a particular place and later we see that the town is called Luz and, and then later it's known as Bethel. But at this point, the place doesn't even have a name. In other words, Jacob is in the middle of nowhere perhaps near the city of Luz or perhaps in a place that becomes the city of Luz during the time when the Israelites are in Egypt and then later it, uh, it becomes Bethel. But either way, he's alone, on the ground. And the second textual marker here is that he uses a stone for a pillow. In other words, he has, he's alone, he's on the ground, and he has nothing with him. This isn't some type of spiritual asceticism of practicing uh, hard life by sleeping on a rock. If you have anything with you soft at all, you're going to choose to sleep on that and use that as a pillow. But Jacob has nothing with him, and so he only has this rock to use as a pillow. Jacob is utterly alone, penniless, and yet on the way to Haran in some form of obedience to God's call. And yet at the same time, we see evidence all through this story that Jacob still doesn't even know God. He's following the instructions that his mother is giving him to go and to find a wife someplace else. Now, a couple things that we can get just from the beginning of the story and where Jacob is. The first thing that, uh, that, 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 that is that we, we, we so often want to know when we're in a deep kind of despair or loneliness or this type of position, how it came about. And we want to know, well, is it a result of our own uh, sin and decisions and bad, bad choices? Or is it, is it the fault of, of others? And, uh, and is God even there in the presence of it? And what we see here is that the answer is not one or the other. As Jesus points out, you know, the question, who sinned that this person should be going through this? And Jesus says, well, no one sinned. But if we look back on the story of Jacob, we know that Jacob has sinned. He's connived and schemed his way through life to get both the blessing, the birthright and the blessing. He's at odds with his brother and even his father. He's alone not being sent with anything in part because of that. And yet at the same time, he's somehow following God's command to some degree. And in a much more significant way, God meets him in this place. God comes and tells him he's with him. As the story unfolds, we'll go there. The second thing, second thing I want you to see here is how God uses this type of place to come and meet us. And that in God's sovereignty, in God's sovereignty, God chooses these places when we have nothing, when we're alone, to come and speak to us and meet us and lead us 
and direct us in a way that becomes a pattern in Scripture. When life is going well, it's tough oftentimes to feel like we need to go to God or to realize that we need him to come to us. But in these places, God chooses to use them to draw us to us. Now, this addresses an important question in the life of uh, the Christian and also for for unbelievers because one of the biggest questions and concerns that you hear people say, well, I can't believe in a God uh, who allows suffering. And we see here Jacob suffering. And the problem with this statement, I can't believe in a God who allows suffering, is that it reveals uh, two assumptions. One is that you believe in a God who's big enough to stop the suffering. You believe in a God who's big enough to stop the suffering. But if you believe in that God who's big enough to stop the suffering, then you have to concede that that God may be big enough to have a purpose for that suffering that is outside of our ability to understand. You can't have it both ways. Either God, the God that you believe in or the God that you disbelieve in is too small to have control or or he's big enough to have control and also big enough to have a reason that we can't and oftentimes don't see. So that's where, that's where Jacob is. He's all by himself. He's alone. He's in this vulnerable place. It's a place that he's receptive to God. And God, sure enough, comes and meets him in a dream. He falls asleep. He's tired. The night has come. He lays his head down the pillow. And verse 12 says he dreamed. Now, I want to stop there before we look at the significance of the dream, because the dream is filled with all kinds of significant truths. But just to say a word about the dream itself, let me say uh, three brief things about it. First thing, don't write off dreams. One of the testimonies you hear over and over if you engage with missions, especially with missionaries in Middle Eastern countries, is the number of people who are coming to Christ because they see, they see Jesus in a dream. And most of us want to be able to Take that and put it in some type of category, file, and say, well, God uses that. Well, well, maybe God uses that in some circumstances. Let me tell you a brief story. A friend of mine, Dennis Pagola, who's worshipped here at the church before, and, and uh, I got to know while I was leading a Bible study for five years down at the, a low-income hotel in SRO uh, um, downtown. De- Dennis Pagola, he died just recently. I didn't even know he had died or that he was particularly sick. He had been near death many times. It was sort of a miracle that he kept living. I got a call a week before his funeral from his daughter. She gave me very little information, wanted me to perform his funeral. I was in New York at the the time. I could not do it. His daughter still hasn't called me back to tell me how he died or anything else, even though I've asked her. Dennis, in many ways, was like Jacob in a very lonely position. If you allow me to eulogize him just a bit here, it's the only place where I can because I, th- I suspect that all, all, any of you who even knew him just briefly met him. He had very few acquaintances. I would teach this Bible study down at Dustin Arms uh, weekly. And Dennis had the room right next to the hallway where we would have this study. And he would open his door crack and listen in on the study. 
occasionally come out, but usually I would go in to say hi to him after the study and talk. Every week I'd see the door cracked. One day I came back. He had been gone the week before. I talked to him. Turns out he had been arrested for something and he was in jail. And while he was in jail, he had a dream. And the dream was more elaborate. I'll just tell you a little bit of the, the, the basic of it. He said part of the dream was that Jesus was reaching out his hand to him. And Dennis said, I didn't reach out to take it. We talked about it a little bit, and he said, do you think I'm crazy? I said, Dennis, I don't think you're crazy unless you don't reach out and take Jesus' hand. He had heard the truth through this study, and it was no simple study. Through the, the, the years there, it was, it was about two years that he was in the Dustin Arms, and he stayed there, and he would not make a decision for Christ. And finally he said, I'm ready to believe in Christ. Now, Dennis wasn't your typical near homeless kind of person. Dennis served in Vietnam as a special forces. Uh, uh, he was a, a, with the Navy SEALs on the, the riverboats, had post-traumatic stress disorder from that. Dennis came back and got his law degree and a ma master's of business administration. I never told you this because I didn't want to reveal his privacy, but I'm eulogizing him now. I'm telling you, he got both those degrees, went to work for the Oakland Raiders where he worked in the front office and made it to the position of CFO, and he served there in that office for 27 years. He lived in a large place in La Jolla for a long time, and as the Oakland Raiders moved back and forth between L.A. and various places, he would fly up to those places. He had some kind of major health event that happened maybe about 10 years ago that wiped him out entirely. The owner of the Oakland Raiders was notoriously stingy, and I suspect, though I never asked him, that his health insurance didn't cover everything and that he had lost everything in his bank account. And he had also lost his health along with it. He still had a fairly sharp mind. Dennis prayed that prayer, but one of the things that constantly frustrated me was that he stayed isolated. He stayed alone. The dream revealed Jesus, but it couldn't reveal, or it didn't reveal, I should say. God could reveal it. He, it didn't reveal his need to be a part of the body, and I encouraged him all the time to do that, and he never did. He died alone. He was buried alone. Let me say one more word about dreams, because while they're powerful, they're not normative. While they're powerful, they are not normative. And one of the errors that you see in our culture, and especially in places that are new to Christianity uh, or where, uh, where Christianity is growing fast, is that dreams and visions and that type of God speaking to people, while it might happen to some people, it's communicated oftentimes that it becomes the normative. If you don't hear God's voice, you're not one of God's people, they say. The Apostle Paul is dealing with this a little bit when he writes in Colossians that the center of the Christian faith is the work that Christ has done, and don't depart from that. 
And he says, let no one, it's Colossians 2, 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. He goes on to say, verse 19, and not holding fast to the head, namely Christ, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. In other words, God may use these visions, but when somebody insists that their vision is the right one and you need to be listening to that, or they say you need to have your own vision or you're not actually there, they miss this right teaching of Scripture, and that is that God doesn't show himself to everyone by a vision like he did to Jacob. God doesn't reveal himself to everyone in the same way, and we shouldn't make that a normative practice. But Jacob... Jacob was in a unique position. He was the third in line, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to receive this promise from God. And that is where God goes with his his communication with Jacob. He reminds Jacob of the promises that he had given to Isaac, or excuse me, to Abraham, and then he repeats to Isaac. And now for the first time, God gives them directly to Jacob. This is Jacob's conversion experience. And what does Jacob see in the dream? Well, the first thing he sees is this. It's not really a ladder so much as it's a stairway. And it's a stairway that is probably connected to that that form that is familiar in the ancient world. And that is uh, this kind of pyramid type structure that's called a ziggurat, where it's a pyramid with multiple tiers some of them still exist today in, in uh, archaeological sites. Multiple tiers, and there was a, a single staircase that went up the side of it to the top place where you ascended into heaven. It's hearkening back to the story that's in Genesis 11, of course, where they, 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 a group of people get together and they want to build a tower to heaven so that they can reach God. And God famously confuses their language tower the town is called Babel it's where we get Babylon it's the human effort of reaching God and so Jacob sees this image and perhaps this image is similar to that ziggurat tower but this one doesn't stop at a certain place on the horizon this tower goes all the way up to heaven it's unlike any human made tower ziggurat stairway This one goes all the way up to heaven. And what does Jacob see on the stairs? He sees angels. When you think of angels, don't think of cute cherubs that are in greeting cards or or fairy tales. Think of what happens when somebody sees an angel. What does the angel say? Always. Fear not. An angel is a powerful being, a mighty warrior. And these angels, these mighty warriors, are going both up and down from heaven. They're connected through this staircase and ascending and descending. Angels were were messengers. The word angel, in fact, is the same word for messenger. And so these angels are taking word from God to the people and from the people to God. And they're going back and forth, back and forth. But, but, but that's not the only thing that comes down on this ladder. Jacob doesn't see this. But who shows up at the bottom of the ladder? But God himself. 
God himself appears standing over Jacob like like a, a parent standing over a child sleeping. And Jacob sees God over him. Sometimes it's translated over it. And, and, uh, but, 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 but God is near Jacob and speaking to him. It doesn't make any sense that God was at the top of the ladder yelling down to Jacob here. God is near Jacob. He's descended the ladder. You see, all the other examples in ancient Near Eastern religions and stories, the ladder is intended for the people to ascend up to God. Still the case today, most world religions are the way to get to God, to ascend the the stairs, to to climb the ladder. But here, God comes down the ladder. And he meets with Jacob and he speaks to Jacob. And at first he identifies himself. I am. I am the God who spoke to your father Abraham and your father Isaac. This dirt that you're lying on, he uses a very tactile illustration, this dirt that you're lying on. I'm going to give you this that extends all the way to the places to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. I'm going to give you this dust. You have nothing with you. You don't even have a stuff sack for a pillow, but I am going to give you all this. Not only that, look at how many grains there are. You're right there. Your head is right there. You can see it. Look how many grains. I'm going to give you as many offspring as the grains of the sand. Those are the promises that he had given to Abraham and to Isaac. He continues with his promise. He says, I'm going to bless you and and repeats that promise that he gave to, to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. You remember what it was? I'm going to bless you and through you, all the nations or the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Never a blessing to be hoarded and to kept, but a blessing to receive and to bless others with. I think it's striking when you meet somebody who's homeless, oftentimes those people are some of the most generous people in the world. They have nothing. And yet when somebody near them needs a shirt, they'll give them the shirt off their back. In our positions of comfort and security, oftentimes we find ourselves unable to give to others. Now, Jacob's response reveals a little bit more to this story, and we'll look at that as well. But Jacob is still in this lowly position where he can hear God's voice and saying, I'm going to bless you, and through you, all the nations, the families of the earth will be blessed. skip a little bit here and just get to the point of this. God reveals himself to to Jacob. God comes down on the ladder. 
And one of the questions that that begs for all of us, it should beg for all of us, is how does God descend the ladder and enter into the brokenness of humanity? How does a holy God descend the ladder? Because that's the goal of ascending the ladder is to escape. It's to flee the things that are the suffering and the sin that's on earth. But the flip side of that is for God to come down onto the earth and to enter into the place. How does, how does a holy God enter into that place? And to get to the answer of that, we have to turn to John 151. It's printed in your bulletin there. And John, the Gospel of John, is recording Jesus in a conversation as he's gathering his first disciples with him. And some of the disciples, Simon Peter and his, and his brother and, and some others are, are gathered together. It's really the, the first few disciples. And, and, and one of them uh, goes and tells another, one, another future disciple, hey, come and, and meet the Messiah. He says, he's from Nazareth. And the other one says, well, nothing good comes from Nazareth. How can this be? And they go, and, and Jesus says something to him that, that reveals that he has inside information. He knows about uh, the, the needs of it. And Jesus says this, 151. He says, I, I, you're impressed with what I just saw you, but, but truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending. Same language, catch that? angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Not with the Son of Man or beside the Son of Man, but on the Son of Man. A.W. Pink says, if, if, if we could not point to this verse, in what we're advancing, some of our readers might charge us with indulging in a wild flight of the imagination. But Jesus uses these specific words. You're going to see the angels in descending on the Son of Man. He, of course, is himself the Son of Man. It's the title that he uses for himself most often. And what he's saying is, I am the stairway. Jesus is saying, I am the stairway. There's no way for God to come down from heaven and enter into the sin of humanity unless... Unless there's a way, there's no way for the sin, humanity and its sin to ascend the staircase unless he is the staircase. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, reconciles God to man, and very different than any other religion trying to get to heaven, comes down into humanity, into the sin, and brings healing and cleansing. This image, by the way, is picked up in the rest of Scripture. We read some from Revelation earlier, both at the beginning of Revelation and at the end of, the Re of Revelation, this image of a new heaven and a new earth, the, the image of a new Jerusalem and a new place of living. This glorious place where sin is no more, where suffering is no more, where does it come from? It's not just in heaven. It's not that everybody gets, gets their ticket to heaven and then they, it's not in this place that, that, that is the Middle East or that, 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 that is the, the land of, of Israel is described. It's the new city, new heavens and new earth coming down, descending 
descending into this place. It is God come down to man. We're about to enter the season of Advent, and we'll look more at what this means of God coming down to humanity to bring rescue and healing. But the rescue doesn't take you out of the place. It's not climbing up Jacob's ladder. It's God coming down to this place and bringing a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, a new heaven, new earth. It comes down. It's God coming down. Now, with that in mind, let's look at Jacob's response. Jacob responds, and, uh, and, and uh, verse 16, Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid. He says, How awesome is this place, that term place, this certain place that he referred to earlier, this place is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, the house of God, Bethel, Bethel, El being God, Beit El is meaning the house of God or the city of God. So, so Jacob attaches it to this particular place where he met God and where he saw that God ascends and descends. But the house of God picks up this significant meaning throughout the scriptures, and it refers specifically to the tabernacle and then later the temple that was in the midst of the Israelites. Again, this picture of God coming down and dwelling with humanity. It's referred to over and over, dozens, hundreds of times, the house of God. The house of God is the place where God dwells with humanity. And the gate of heaven, this is a fairly unique phrase, but it refers back to those efforts of people trying to get up the, the ziggurat. It even has some connections to the, the, to the name Babel. The, the gate of heaven isn't like some kind of magical portal like in the Harry Potter movies and the Ministry of Magic where everybody just appears at the same time. They don't all appear in the same place. The gate of heaven, the house of heaven, the, the, the house of God had this particular place and time in Jacob's mind that becomes the tabernacle, the temple in the time of the Israelites. But these things are material things that point us to this greater truth and that is that the dwelling of God is with humanity. Jesus says, I am the temple. He says, you become the temple. I live in you. The gate of heaven becomes not this particular place, but any place where God comes and meets somebody, especially when he comes and meets them in their time of need. Jacob turns this stone on end and he sets it up as a pillar and he anoints it with oil. He doesn't yet offer sacrifices and it's probably tied to his lack of belief. And this is sort of fascinating about his response. Did you notice this? That he gets up and he makes a deal with God. Jacob is a conniving. He's a, he's a dealer. He continues his dealing with Laban. He comes to it. He says, God, if you will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, right? Another hint that he doesn't have these things, right? So that I come again to my father's house in peace after he's gone up to Haran and comes back. Then... If, 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 then you shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. It's, it's, 
it's again not a pattern for us to follow. We said Genesis tends to give us the what, but not so much of the why. Genesis in this case gives us the what, but the New Testament helps us understand the who is the latter. The conditional response of Jacob is still a response out of fear, not of God, but a fear for his own uh, livelihood, is a fear for who he would be. But here's the significant thing here. What does God do? He doesn't correct him. He doesn't say, oh, you missed that one. Head back to your family. We'll start this again in a couple years once you're ready. He doesn't speak another word to Jacob right away anyway. He goes with Jacob. He shows this kind of patience and compassion for a man who's wrestling to find a faith that is weak in his mind, that is weak in his heart, that he doesn't understand is still entangled and entwined with sins of his past. And God reminds Jacob of what we studied last week, that it wasn't Jacob who chose God, but God who chose Jacob. It wasn't Jacob who went to find God in the wilderness. It was God who came to find Jacob in the wilderness. Jacob sets up a rock of remembrance there in the wilderness. In part, I'm sure it served to remind him that it was God who was faithful in this and not him. God doesn't call us to say, well, if you'll give me this, then I'll follow you. That is a vow that has been made by millions of people. And it's a foolish vow. The response that God calls us to is when Jesus reaches out his hand to us, we take it. When Jesus calls us to go to a certain place, we go. When Jesus calls us to a certain practice, we do it. Jacob's life doesn't change immediately with what is probably his conversion. I was reading an article just this week in the Wall Street Journal about Disney and its princess industry. Some of you may have seen it. Evidently, Disney is in a crisis. For the image of beauty and of goodness that the princesses have conveyed over the years is being challenged now. And a recent movie mocks multiple princesses in one scene where they're off stage and letting their hair down and just getting out of bed and whatever else the things were. Mandy helpfully quipped, if you're looking to Disney to find the model for humanity or what a godly woman is, you're looking in the wrong place to begin with. Read a good book. <laughs> they were somehow wrestling to find a strong woman example in Disney, and it didn't exist then, it won't exist now. It exists in books and exists in the Bible throughout examples of those strong women. But the article ended with this interview with a woman from San Diego, 31 years old, two little kids, all of them big Disney fans, and and and, and she says to her daughters, and they've been trained to respond, anytime they hear the words and they lived happily ever after, her daughters chime in, quote, with lots of hard work and open communication. 
The story of Jacob's life helps us understand the story of our life that after that conversion experience, it's not just, and they lived happily ever after. Everything turned around for Jacob. It was easy going from there. That's a false gospel. It's a false narrative. It's not the message that comes from angels. It's not the message that comes from God. It's not the message that we've been called to communicate to others. The work that Jacob entered into in his conversion continued with lots of hard work and sometimes open communication and sometimes not. And what another pastor friend titled his book, The Sometimes Stumbling Life Kind of Life. But the story of Genesis is all about God faithfully leading his sometimes stumbling people through life and faithfully continuing to shepherd them and guide them. Understanding that those, those, those Jacob types of moments with our head sleeping on a rock for a pillow are things that God has chosen to use to call us to himself. To break us free from the idolatry of, of self-sufficiency. The idolatry of, of self-salvation. The idolatry of all kinds of other things we find in our life that distract us from hearing God's voice speak to us. The writer of Hebrews, which we've looked at a lot throughout this study of Old Testament connected to New Testament, says today, he's quoting, uh, uh, quoting back to the Old Testament again here, but he says today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness when the Israelites, now a massive number of peoples, still not the number of grains of sand, but still but a million plus people are wandering in the wilderness and, and, and they heard God's voice and what they did, they hardened their hearts. Today, if you hear God's voice, you're sleeping on that hard rock That rock can either be a metaphor for the condition of your heart, rock hard, or you can turn that rock up on its end and set up a pillar of remembrance for how God met you in that place and promise to take care of you. And even though your response was stumbling and and weak and, and, and lacking in faith, you went on following God. You believed him to some degree. And that rock becomes this Ebenezer. It's a word that means rock of remembrance. The illustration is all through the New Testament as well. And Jesus says, I am that rock. I am the the cornerstone. I'm the pillar. You know, we're living stones, but he is the cornerstone of that temple. the, The holy God living in your heart. It's no longer unholy, it's been made holy. Though we stumble, though we sin, your heart has become a holy dwelling place for the God of the universe who descends that stair to rescue and meet with you in those places. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have uh, provided this way to heaven. 
but that the stairway is not one directional, it is two directional, and that you descend to us and meet us in these places of need. That you descend to us and pull us out of these places, but, but continue to strengthen us. Father, we remind us of the forgiveness that you've won for us, the holiness you've given to us, that we are your dwelling place, the house of God. That as we lead others to Jesus, we also become the gate of heaven. For Jesus is that stairway on which we ascend and descend between heaven and earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name.